It's a great joy to be with you all. Uh, it is amazing that you can travel. It's more than halfway across the world because we're 14 hours apart, uh, but feel so at home. And I do feel so at home here. Uh, for those of you who weren't here and have come since 2018, you've come to a, I want to say a great church, uh, because it is. Uh, but it's great because they love the Lord Jesus. And I think you've probably seen that. And uh, I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, where I serve with C.J. Mahaney and Jeff Perswell and others who, of the founding generation. Every time you say that, I just feel so old. The founding generation. <laughs> Anyway, I'm excited. I still feel like the Lord's doing stuff, and I can be a part of it. And so, even though you try to make me feel old, Dave, I feel young in my heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that uh, I don't know if people are always aware who are new to Sovereign Grace is that I don't come in feeling like a guest speaker. I come in feeling like a friend uh, because I've known Dave and Emma for quite some time, and Brendan and Charlotte and Andrew, and I don't know your wife's name. So obviously, we haven't spent too much time together. Um, But just been in their homes, and we've hung out, and we, like, are friends. We think that's what the gospel does. This is not a professional gig that, uh, you know, come in and in fact, someone asked me last night at the gathering around the gospel, so what else are you doing here? You know, what other things are you doing? They said, well, I'm, I'm going to be with the pastors and wives on Tuesday and, you know, with the church here and church in Paramount on Sunday, next Sunday, and, you know, hanging with the, some worship leaders Wednesday. It's, that's what I'm doing. You know, hanging out with people that, that I know and want to get to know and want to love. It's not about just some big event because that's how the Lord works. Now, he can work through big events, but mostly he works through people seeing that we, we love one another as he has loved us. And that, that draws them. And it's not always flashy. Uh, but boy, am I glad to be here. The only thing that would make this morning better is if with Julie were here rather than David. But <laughs> he probably wishes the same thing. He, his wife's named Julie as well. <laughs> All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 145. Speaking of my wife, Julie, if you have been in our home and eaten a meal, you know she knows how to cook. She, I should weigh 400 pounds, given the way my wife cooks. As, uh, to quote a children's song, her meals make your eyes light up and your tummy say howdy. That's an American tune. <laughs> Each night, as our household sits down to a meal, and we do have a household, my daughter and her husband and two kids live with us, as well as a a couple who are attending the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, someone will eventually say something like, this tastes so good, or this chicken's so moist, or this sauce is so creamy, or or the definitive compliment is, can I have seconds? And we often hear that. Now, wouldn't it be odd if... We all thoroughly enjoyed the meal, but no one ever said anything. If we all talked about how the day had been and discussed our plans for the night, but but never said how delicious the meal was. That's because we like to praise the things we enjoy. It's It's just something we do reflexively. If we really like something, 
it's hard to stay quiet about it. Why is that? Why do we have to praise what we enjoy? Well, years ago, the British author C.S. Lewis gave an insightful answer to that question. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. In other words, they're not, they're not just trying to throw them a compliment. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And the greater the delight, the more intense, the more expressive, and the more enduring the praise. Think of a friend who won't stop talking about their favorite movie, or a book they love, or a band they just discovered, or a recent trip they took. They just go on and on, and you say, okay, and then they bring out the pictures, and go, no, no, stop. They want to share it. They want, to, they want to, you to experience the joy they're experiencing. But what if you found something that surpassed all your other delights? What if you found something that exceeded all your expectations? That overwhelmed you with its sheer beauty? And humbled you with its grandeur and compelled your unrestrained, unending praise. Well, you might write Psalm 145. Because that's what this is. It's an expression of praise so comprehensive and so passionate. It should take our breath away. C.S. Lewis goes on to say... The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. In Psalm 145, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. How? By giving Him praise. Psalm 145 is the last of eight acrostic psalms, meaning each line with slight variations begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And scholars don't know exactly why acrostic psalms exist, but one reason is that the author wants to communicate something very intentionally. He wants to communicate his thoughts in a beautiful, structured, impacting form. He's really excited about this, and he wants us to get it, so he organizes everything in a very structured way. And the theme couldn't be more appropriate. Praise that's fit for a king. And if you're taking notes, that's what I've titled this message, Praise Fit for a King. Up to this point, many of the Psalms have explored not only the topic of praise to God, as this one does, but of opposition, lots of enemies in the Psalms, loss, discouragement, 
unfulfilled hopes, doubt, enemies, devastation, sin. There are songs of confession, songs of lament. And they they give us words to say to God as we wait for His deliverance. But Psalm 145 isn't like that. It is an overflow of praise. And it's the only one of David's 73 psalms, and actually the only psalm in the Bible that is entitled a psalm of praise. Even though the word, very word psalter is taken from the word for praise, this is the only psalm that is titled a song of praise. It's a rushing torrent of confidence, celebration, and joy that serves as a hinge between what came before and what's about to follow in the last five psalms, which are the hallelujah psalms. It's as though David and the psalmist together were saying, if you trust in God, this is where your life is headed. Just so you know, it may seem bleak now, but this is where your life is headed. This psalm is a song of someone who sees God as he really is. And that view is staggering. And I hope by the Spirit's power we get a clearer picture of that view as we go through the psalm together. Because this is what I think the psalm teaches us. Those who know God is a king like no other will not rest until he receives praise like no other. If you know that God is a king like no other, you won't rest until he receives praise like no other. They know that their enjoyment of God must reach its consummation in specific, engaged, joy-filled, universal praise. Don't you want to see what Psalm 145 actually says? Let's read it. Actually, let me read it for you. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. This is the word of the living God. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known 
to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And then there's a verse here that many manuscripts don't contain. I'm not sure it was part of the original. Doesn't change the meaning of the psalm. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. (laughs) He's pretty excited. He's pretty amazed. He's pretty taken by God. David begins, I will extol you, my God and King. The way we're going to break this down is we're going to look at four ways that David extols God as King in this psalm. And then we're going to look at the kind of response that's fitting to that knowledge. So first, David extols God as the great King, verses 3 through 6. Point number one, the great king. Psalm opens with this, this note of celebration. This is not a lament psalm. This is not a song of confession. This is a song of praise. And it's summed up in verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, the Lord's greatness is unsearchable, not in the sense that we shouldn't try to understand it, we shouldn't try to search it out, but in the sense that we will never reach the end of it. It's not humble to say that we can't know God because He's too big. He's too mysterious. We'll always be in the dark about the divine entity. Well, no, God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture and in the Lord Jesus Christ but we'll never reach the end of knowing him because he's that great. And look at the words David piles up to describe God's great reign. His mighty acts. The glorious splendor, verse 5. His majesty, his wondrous works, his awesome deeds, his greatness. He wants us to feel something. He wants us to feel that God is great. And commentator Derek Kidner notes that that these descriptions of God aren't very personal. 
like David will sometimes use, words to describe God that reflect more his experience and relationship. Words like, God is my salvation, God is my rock, God is my fortress, he's my deliverer. It's because David wants to point us at this moment to see the transcendence and immensity of God. He wants us to see that God's greatness is unsearchable. Why is he doing that? Well, in his commentary in the psalm, W.S. Plumer says, Unless we have great thoughts of God, our thoughts of sin will be low, our sense of obligation feeble, and our praises dull. One of the reasons we don't praise God very passionately is because we don't know how great He is. We don't realize that His greatness is unsearchable. That's why we want to be clear when we gather that God is really great. Even apart from what He does for us, although that is really important. But praise that is only concerned with what God does for us and that only focuses on our responses and our emotions tends to lead to us worshiping our worship rather than worshiping God. And there's a lot of that going on where we just get excited because we're excited. Oh, look at everybody. He's excited. Everybody's so excited. That's not what this is doing. That's not what David's doing. He's saying, I want you to see God. I want you to be excited because you see God. God. So we want to exalt God as the great king. Number two, David extols God as the good king. In verse seven, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. God's not just the great king. He's the good king. He is famous for his abundant goodness and righteousness. He goes on to say, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do those words sound familiar to you? You know where they're from? From Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. When Moses, in chapter 33, had asked God to show him his goodness. And God said he would... I'm sorry, Moses... Asked God to show him his glory. And God said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim my name to you. Took place right after the Israelites had been delivered out of bondage to Egypt through the Red Sea. And there at Mount Sinai, God promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. But while Moses was up on the mountain talking with God, the Israelites prostituted themselves and worshipped a golden calf and said, you brought us out of Egypt. And God would have every right at that moment to wipe them out. And he would have had Moses not stepped in to intercede for them. But instead, he communicated these words to Moses. Tell them, I am merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God doesn't want to be known just as the great king. He wants to be known as the good king. And David goes on to expand the scope of God's goodness and mercy in verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all He has made. Verse 8 speaks of God's goodness to His people. 
But this verse speaks of God's goodness to everyone. You might not know Christ this morning. You might not be able to identify with what we're talking about. God, God's so good. Well, David's saying you should be able to see God's goodness too. All over the world, God provides sights that astound and delight and propel us to amazement and wonder. In the States, we have the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you might have something that surpasses that in your own eyes. You have the Great Barrier Reef, which Dave was just telling me about. Which How many uh, types of coral? Over 700 types of coral. Wow, why would God do that? Oh, he's so good. We have Hawaiian sunsets. We have rivers and oceans teeming with creatures that not only are beautiful to look at, but some of you are delicious to eat. That's God's goodness. Fruits, vegetables, grains grow in abundance. God's giving us, um, giving us amazing colors, tastes, textures, smells to enjoy. He didn't have to do that. But He's good. And most of all, God is good because He doesn't destroy us every time we sin. He could. One of the most overlooked signs, evidences of God's goodness, is His patience with sinful people. He blesses us. He bears with us. He sustains us. And we don't deserve any of it. It's all because He's so good. He's a good King. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. So in verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. David uses the word all a lot in this psalm. He's trying to make a point. God's works thank him just by doing what they do. Stars shine, oceans roar, birds sing. They are pointing to his goodness. But those who have been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb and are no longer under judgment but are objects of his affection, we have much greater reasons to bless the Lord. That's what we were created for. To give Him glory. To use Old Testament language, we are the pinnacle of all He has made. We are the apple of His eye. We are His treasured possession. How can we not see His goodness? Our hearts have been changed. We used to think that other things were ultimately good. And now we're seeing, no, God's good. And so we want to praise Him. Because those who know God as a king like no other will not rest until He receives praise like no other. Point three, David extols God as the glorious king. He's great. He's good. He's glorious. It's a display of His sovereignty and power over everything for all time. They shall speak, verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. This is what we are are called to do once we see how great, good, and glorious God is. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's reign is not like the reign of kings and presidents and premiers on earth. His reign doesn't have term limits. 
You know, in every reign, every nation of the world, rulers change either by election, appointment, overthrow, or death. God's rule doesn't change. No one's ever going to fill that throne. We've named people throughout history as great. Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar the Great, Constantine the Great, Charlemagne the Great, Catherine the Great. They're not really great. (laughs) Maybe from our perspective they're great, but they're not really great. Someone else is sitting on their throne or those thrones don't even exist anymore. God has always ruled and he will always rule. That's why his reign is glorious. And when when things are going bad, people will sometimes say, it's all good. You hear that phrase here? It's all good. It's all good. They want to communicate that, you know, it's going to work out. Don't stress out. It's, It's all right. It's all good. We have something better to say. Not that it's wrong to say that, but you've got to know why it's all good. It's all good because it's all God's. God is in control. He's on the throne. He rules. And we don't have to say it with resignation or with with hesitancy. No, God rules. He's on the throne. We're making known to the children of man his mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of his kingdom. And what a source of comfort for those who have endured chronic pain or illness or trouble or challenges or trials. There is a ruler. There is a king. And so they speak of the glory of his kingdom and tell of his power. We can't help it. We want people to know that he rules. And after praising God for his dominion and his kingship and his rule, one might expect him to just go on with that. That's a good theme. Let's keep doing that. But David, to show us how great and glorious God really is, fills out the headlines that he gave us in verses 8 and 9 about his goodness. He helps us see that God has also revealed himself as the gracious king. That's point four, the gracious king. Grace speaks of undeserved, unmerited favor. We don't deserve this. We never earned it. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. This isn't a promise that if anyone ever falls or anyone is bowed down, they'll they'll automatically be raised up. David's saying that if someone recovers from a fall or is sustained through trials or is raised up out of humbling circumstances, the Lord is the one who did it. We never pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are never the reason why we have gotten out of the situation we're in. Although that's what the world will tell us. God is the one who has done it. We depend every moment on His strength, on His providence, and on His power. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. God's intimately involved in sustaining everything he's made. He goes on in verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. That tells us that everything in creation is absolutely dependent on God for its existence. 
New Testament says, in him we live and move and have our being. And God isn't stingy. He's lavish in his generosity, open-handed in his blessings, and free in his giving. Parents, and I am one, six kids, are often overwhelmed by the amount of time and energy and effort and sweat and wisdom and money it takes to provide for their children. One child would do that to you. I remember when we go out to a restaurant and I'd tell the kids, guys, here's the rules, water, just water. And anything under $3 is fine. I remember one time we were out with my father-in-law and his wife and at a restaurant and uh, I told the kids, guys, you can get anything you want on the menu. And my oldest son, he's about 10 years old, leaned over to me and said, you're not paying for this, are you? said, well, no, I'm not. <laughs> We've, we always feel a little pinched in trying to provide. Governments spend countless hours. They organize countless committees, make countless laws to make sure that people are provided for, often with little or no success. God doesn't labor. He doesn't strive. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't work hard. God opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. That's who he is. That speaks not only of power, but of goodness. He gives us what we need to live a fulfilled life in this world. God's goodness and his grace abound everywhere. Do we have the eyes to see them? Do we see what God's doing? Do we see what God is making? Do we see how God has been lavishly generous with us? Were our lives characterized by grumbling? We'll get into the response in just a minute, but I just thought I'd throw in there, throw that in there. God, but God shows a unique. So we've talked about how God is good to everyone. God's good to all. But he's uniquely good to his people. He's uniquely gracious to his people. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The word for kindness there might be better translated as loyal. Or unchanging. He doesn't go back on his righteous word. He's not going to contradict what he said. Is God kind to all? Yes, he is kind to all. Is he good to all? Yes, he is good to all. The psalmist has already said that. The theologian J.I. Packer explains, God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways. I just love that. God is good to all in some ways, but he's good to some in all ways. And the some are those who know his steadfast love, those who know his grace. God is good to them always in all ways. So then he spells it out in verse 18. The Lord is near. To all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord graciously promises his presence to those who know his steadfast love. God is near not only to those who call on him, but to those who call on him in truth. That is, those who know him as he really is. He doesn't promise to be near us when we see him as some cosmic servant, someone we can call on to do our bidding at any time. 
No, those who call on him in truth are those who have humbled themselves before him and believe his promises. Those who seek to know and understand his word so they might trust and follow him. And on this side of the cross and resurrection, those who call on him in truth is those who call on him by him who is the truth, Jesus Christ. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. God promises to graciously answer our prayers. Back in verse 16, we were told the Lord satisfies the desire of every living thing. But here we're told God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Because those who fear him have different desires than every living thing. We desire God's glory. We desire to walk in God's ways. We desire to know God's forgiveness. We desire to see Jesus' name exalted. So God hears our cry. He saves us. He often saves us from our situation, but ultimately, he saves us from our sins and his wrath. And here's another promise in verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The Lord graciously promises to protect us. He is a gracious king. The Lord watches over all who love him. Psalm 121 says, He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And God will destroy the wicked because he protects those he loves from those who would harm them. God ensures that the kingdom of heaven will be made up exclusively of those who love the king. But that promise that God will protect is also intended to be a warning. Those who refuse to receive the grace and mercy that God has given us in Jesus Christ will receive exactly what they deserve. The righteous punishment for their sin and their rebellion. They will be destroyed. You can't fight this king and win. But there's always hope. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Anyone who turns to Jesus Christ to trust that his perfect life was lived on their behalf, that his death was died in their place to receive their punishment, and that he rose from the dead, can receive eternal life. And they can find refuge in this great and good and glorious and gracious King. Which brings us to the question, what kind of praise is fitting for this kind of king? Well, I think we can see at least four appropriate responses. What kind of praise is fitting for this king? First, it's personal. David is a king himself. This is a king reciting these words, writing these words. But he starts out, I will extol you, my God and king. David's a king, but he's going to praise the king. He doesn't delegate the praise of God to others. You, my royal subjects, you praise God. 
He's not doing that. He says, I'm going to do it. I will extol you, my God and King. He wants to be right in the middle of it. He's not content to watch others do it for him. Listen to what he says. I will exalt. I will bless. I will praise. I will meditate. I will sing. He will never be caught standing in the midst of a crowd praising God. Just kind of unaffected. They're doing a fine job praising him. I don't need to pray. He's, God knows I love him. Really? If you enjoy something, that enjoyment is consummated in praise. And David enjoys God. <laughs> He's saying, I'm not going to let other people do this for me. So it's personal. Second, the fitting response is passionate. This is not, as you may have gathered, a formal external response offered on Sundays by disinterested church members. Well, I'm supposed to be there. I have to be here. It's what I do. I was raised this way. It's heartfelt. It's expressive. Verse 2, every day I will bless you. Every day I will bless you. Not just occasionally or when I feel like it. His praise aligns with what is true about God. God is always worthy. God is always good. He's always great. He's always gracious. He's always glorious. So David says, I'm going to praise you every day. And I'm going to do it with all my heart. Uh, It's not going to be half-hearted or lazy or quiet. It's going to be loud. Verse Seven, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Sorry, am I distorting? I don't want to distort. But you can't preach this message quietly. And I doubt if you get many quiet messages here. (laughs) This language is exuberant. It's over the top. It's like almost too much. And I know what some of you might be thinking. I grew up conservative. I'm an Anglican at heart, Presbyterian. I'm an introvert. I, I don't want to be distraction. It's, it's just not my style. You, you can do that. You're an American. I'm an Australian. You don't understand the differences. And I would say, maybe you don't understand how great God is. Our response, the fitting response of praise to the king is not based on our personality. It's not based on our preferences. It's not based on our upbringing or even our circumstances. You have Paul and Silas in Acts 16 praising God, singing hymns to to God while their feet are in stocks. They've been beaten. What are they doing? Singing praise to God. It doesn't seem very fitting for that environment. But it's fitting praise if you know the king. And they knew the king. And this personal and passionate praise doesn't stop with David. The third characteristic of the praise that's fitting for the king is that it's passed on. One generation, verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. David is describing a godly, 
desire to pass on what is true and praiseworthy about God to future generations. He's not just saying, look how excited I am about God. Look how much I enjoy God. Look how much I'm praising Him. He's not doing that. He's saying, I want you to praise Him. He's looking out. He's saying, I want future generations to praise Him. Notice, we're not passing on our preferences or simply our practices or our traditions as time-proven as they may be. We are passing on praise for God's works. And we're not simply going through a rote repetition of what others have said. Although tradition and repetition are wise and good. But we are adding our own testimonies of how God has worked in our generation. A pastor who's going to be with the Lord, James Montgomery Boyce, said this, This statement does not mean merely that the stories of God's past acts will be passed on by the redeemed community, though that is true, but that each generation of believers will add to that old story the account of what God also has done with them. I don't know if you've heard of the movie Jesus Revolution. That's shown in Australia. I was part of that generation in the early 70s. God was bringing all kinds of people to the Lord. Strange people, weird people, decadent people, drugged up people. And people who thought they were put together and had no need for God. And it was amazing. And I look back at that time, because that's what the movie's about, that time. I think, that was amazing. I just want to talk about that time. I want to talk about this time. And what God is doing in this generation. Because He's doing so much that is worthy of praise. And those who know God is a king like no other will not rest until He receives praise like no other. So we want it passed on. And then finally, a fitting response is eternal. David begins and ends the psalm with eternity in view. He's not just thinking this life. He says, verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Verse 2, I will praise your name forever and ever. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh Bless His holy name forever and ever. God's praise, while it should certainly be a part of our meetings, can't be contained to our meetings. It can't be contained to a calendar year or a century or time itself. We will never, ever, ever reach the end of finding things that God is worthy to be praised for. Never. And isn't it funny how in our devotion sometimes we begin our prayers, and I would be, this would characterize me at times. I begin, God, thank you for being faithful and good, and you're just so good and faithful, and, and I'm so glad you're good. Did I say you're faithful? I'm just, we, we just kind of run out of words. Why do we run out of words? Maybe we don't know him as well as he wants us to. Maybe we don't know how good he is. 
David prays at the end of his prayer, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And we know that prayer will be answered. Because Jesus Christ has ensured through his redeeming work that God will have a people who will bless his holy name forever and ever. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And I heard every creature. This is the end of all things, guys. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Some of us are thinking, I could never be that exuberant about God. Well, if you're a Christian... One day you will be. Some of you are thinking, I could never raise my hands to to Jesus. If you're a Christian, one day you will. I could never bow down to him. If you're a Christian, one day you will. So why don't we get started now? you've experienced God's life-transforming grace through Christ, we sit here this morning knowing we will be among that multitude. God gave us this psalm, I think, to raise our eyes above our circumstances and our personalities and our backgrounds and our trials, above the temptations we're fighting, the trials we're facing, the suffering we may be enduring, to see that Our great God is ruling over all things and He's graciously working all things for our good in Christ. And so we respond in ways that defy our circumstances and confound those who don't know God. They just think, how can they do that? How can they do that? And we respond, you don't know the king that I do. You you must not, or else you'd want to do the same thing. We respond with praise fit for a king because God is a king like no other. And with all the joys he gives us in this life, we know our greatest joy lies in the future when we join our voice with those around the throne. But we don't want to wait for that day because God is great and he's good and he's glorious and he's gracious now. And we want to bless his name every day and forever all to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that in Your kindness and mercy, You have not left us on our own. You have have not said to us, figure out how You're going to get to me. You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word and in Jesus Christ so that we might respond to You in a way that is worthy of your greatness and your glory and your goodness. And we thank you that we see who you are most clearly in Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who does not know you through Jesus Christ, 
that they would humble themselves and see there is no other Savior, there is no other King but you, and would turn from the hopeless pursuit of their sin to the forgiveness that you have provided for us in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That they might be turned into a glad subject of the King who is like no other. Thank you that we can praise you together and may our voices resound by the Spirit's work in us for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ.